So my name is Matt Stevens, and I'm one of the uh, elders here uh, at the bridge. Uh, I'm at the Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday Heights Transformation Group. If you want to hang out, that's a good place to do it. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And uh, of course, we'll start back up in the fall. But uh, but hit me up. I'm on my porch, front porch, a lot, so we can we can spend some time there. It's getting a little hot, but there's a hose, so we'll make do. Very good, and uh, it's my pleasure this morning to uh, introduce for the second second week running, uh, Mr. Calvin Williams. He's been uh, pre he preached starting with Titus chapter one last week, and we get chapter two today. Uh, just a really cool look at the instructions of Paul to his to his um, faithful partner in ministry, Titus, as as they plant uh, churches and appoint elders to oversee those churches, which is pretty fitting, you know, as Calvin himself is planning a church in Katy, the, the church project, Katy, and um, um, they, they're, they're striving to change the way that people see Christ and Christians and church, so no big deal, just, you know, easy, easy day, right? Uh, and just, I was really encouraged by your message last week, I listened online about just really the gospel and how uh, faith in Jesus uh, leads to obedience, and uh, I can't wait to hear what we've got in chapter two. All right. I am loud. I told him this last week, so I yell or I get loud, so you might have adjust. Uh, yeah, so excited to be here. This is week two, so I'm sure some of you weren't here last week. So I'll do the uh, same recap. My name's Calvin Williams. Last week, I had uh, my right-hand woman with me, my beautiful wife, Crystal, uh, who is down front. She is 38 weeks pregnant starting tomorrow, so uh, she is amazing, and uh, she is at home with her feet propped up. If, uh, we, if, if at some point in this gathering I'm running out the door, it's probably because our first child is on the way. Uh, we don't know if it's a boy or girl. We're waiting to find out, uh, but we're really excited. It's I'm sure all you parents know it's kind of like life is on hold until this uh, child comes. So we're excited. She's excited. She's uncomfortable. So she's excited uh, to have this child. And uh, man, we're just pumped. I want to start off today uh, a little story. Before that, he mentioned we're Church Project Katie. Uh, one of the cool things that I just want you to know about the bridge and your church, this church, is that uh, your church supports an organization, mentioned it, Houston Church Planning Network. Uh, it's a group of churches and pastors in Houston from all different denominations, all different backgrounds, all different types of churches that have come together to say, we need more churches and the gospel to be preached more in Houston, Texas. And Honestly, we kind of don't care as long as uh, doctrinally you're okay. We don't care what type of church and how you're going to do church as long as you reach people for Jesus because over 3,000 people on average move to Houston every week, which means we need a lot of churches just to keep up with the growth, not even to improve the, the uh, growth. And so uh, Houston Church Planning Network is an amazing organization, and the bridge contributes to that, supports that. Heath is uh, one of the people who interviewed me to be a part of Houston Church Planning Network, and so it's just an amazing organization that is helping train guys like me, and next week another guy from uh, our residency will be here with you, and so just know that your church is doing some amazing things uh, beyond just these four walls of what your church is doing. I want to start off with a story of one of the guys who's in the residency program with me, a guy named Derek, an amazing guy, and 
uh, as we went through our residency program, we got to share our testimonies, our stories with one another. Derek grew up in a super Christian home. I don't know if we have anyone in the room who grew up in a home like this, but Derek's father's in ministry his whole life. Derek's grandfather's uncles. I mean, he's got pastors all across the board. Like, Everyone in his family pretty much serves in the church in some capacity, right? And so he grew up super Christian home, uh, super church home, went to church his whole life, and kind of grew up as like the perfect child type of thing, right? Knows all the rules, knows what to do, what to not do, knows what to say, what to not say. Grew up in all that. In high school, he starts feeling like maybe uh, he wants to go do ministry. Maybe he wants to work in a church like 90% of his family does. And so he decides to go to a private Christian college in Florida. That's he he grew up in Florida. Private Christian college in Florida. Now, there's two things uh, you should know about private Christian schools. If any of you have ever attended a private Christian school, you will know these two things. Number one, private Christian schools are great. They're cool. Uh, They're great. I went to a private Christian school. That's where I met my my wife. Uh, there is a, a little bit more intentional focus to try to lead people to Jesus and do a, a, a little bit more of the Christian thing. Uh, so that's good. But the second thing you would know if you've ever actually attended a private Christian school is that uh, it's pretty much just like every other school, and people still do all the bad things that go with college. Right? A, a lot of people think that at some private Christian school, like for some reason, college students and 20-year-olds are going to uh, act perfectly That is not the case. And a lot of times parents send their kids to the private Christian school thinking that it's going to be a perfect environment for their kid. And then they find out, well, people drink and people party and people do things that uh, aren't exactly the greatest things in the world. So as Derek found out when he went to this private Christian school, grew up perfect home, private Christian school, going to be a minister in the church, doing his uh, uh, biblical degree, and he's going along. And then he meets this group of guys who are all doing their Bible degree together, and they're great guys, but as they meet, uh, they start to start having a drink. So it starts off, they, they're going to meet together, and I think at first they started meeting about the Bible, but they thought, you know what, let's just have like one beer while we meet, right? Not the end of the world. I, I don't think that's a huge thing, but they, they were underage at the time, so don't recommend that, but, but not like the end of the world, right? I'm not, they're not getting hammered. It was just one drink. But then... It happened again, and it happened again, and if any of you know how the story goes, it happens again and again, and to where this group of friends, every time they met, they needed alcohol. Like It became the standard. If there was an alcohol present, they weren't meeting because that wouldn't be any fun, right? And so it became every time, and it grew and it grew to where they were getting drunk, and that led into more and more things, and long story short, the one thing private Christian schools do have our rules, even though people don't follow them, but they do have some rules. And long story short, this group of friends got found out that on campus they were doing this, uh, drinking heavily and leading into other things. And I don't know if it was a photo or a video, but they have physical evidence of them doing this. So my friend Derek finds himself sitting down in the president's office of the university and the president is holding up the photo or showed him the video. I don't, like I said, I don't remember which one. But actual, like, evidence. Like, there's no way you could say, oh, that wasn't me. Like, this is clearly you in this screenshot. Look at what you're doing, Derek. 
this is clearly underage drinking. You can't have alcohol on campus. You're doing all, like ABCD. You've broken all these rules. You've made an agreement not to do any of these rules, right? So here's the deal, Derek. Tomorrow, you're leaving, and you're not coming back to this campus. And tonight, or by tomorrow, I want you to take everything you have in your dorm room, move it out, be on the street, and I don't care how you get home, but you're leaving this campus. So Derek, perfect Christian, perfect Christian home, going to be the Christian minister guy, the next day is on the sidewalk in front of his dorm with all of his stuff. And his parents live four hours away. And you can imagine having the, the conversation with the superintendent, the, the president of the university, that's difficult, that's hard. Like getting, that's not any fun. But the hard part, the harder part is someone's got to call their dad and say, hey, dad, you know all that money you've been paying for me to go to this private Christian school, and you know the perfect child you thought it was, and you know how I was supposed to go do this and that, and the thousands of dollars you provided for me to do that? Well, uh, that's all gone down the drain, and it's wasted, because this is what I've done. And not only that, but it really doesn't matter what you're doing today, because I need someone to drive and pick me up, because I don't have anywhere to stay now, and all my stuff's on the sidewalk with me. So he makes this phone call to his dad, tells him, as you can imagine, then Derek is waiting, sitting outside for hours. And that's the worst part, right? Because then you're just waiting, right? And he's waiting this whole time for his dad to drive hours, to get off work, drives hours to come pick up his son. And so put yourself in those shoes. You might imagine that Derek is uh, kind of freaking out, okay? He's stressed, worried, dad's going to kill me, I've wasted thousands of dollars for me to go to the private Christian school. Another thing about private Christian schools, they're not cheap. And so, right, he's stressing out. His dad shows up, and Derek's, right, his mindset, my dad is going to kill me. Like, this is it, right? I'm done. Dad shows up, pulls up to the curb, gets out of the car, and him and Derek make eye contact. And his dad walks up to Derek he wraps his arm around him and gives him a hug. And he says, son, I love you. Let's get in the car and go home. Helps him load up his stuff and he goes home. What I want to talk about today is this little word we call grace. And I want to challenge you with a statement that we'll unpack and we'll talk about a little bit later. And the statement is this, that Right now, where you sit and who you are, you will never be more valuable to God than you are right now. You will never be more loved or worth more to God than you are right now. We're going to unpack this today. If you've got your Bible, open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Uh, this is where we, we started off last week. Titus is in the New Testament, so the Bible's kind of broken into Old Testament, New Testament. Titus is in the New Testament, and it's toward the end of the book. So if you're looking at your Bible, it's pretty much towards the end. Uh-oh, letter down. So it's towards the end of the Bible. If you're trying to find that out, you can look in the uh, table of contents. Titus chapter 2, and what we're going to do today is I'm just going to read this chapter, say a prayer, and then we're going to break it down and talk about grace. But as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. 
Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands so that the word of God may not be discredited. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, to show yourself in all respects a model of good works and in your teaching to show integrity, gravity, and sound speech that cannot be censored. Then any opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. Tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity, so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God, of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in this present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority, and let no one look down on you. Let's pray. Father, first, I thank you for your scripture, and I pray it changes our lives today. And specifically, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your grace that I'm here today and able to preach on this. And I thank you for your grace that is available to each one of us today. And more than anything, God, I pray that we would leave here today knowing just how you see us and just how valuable and how loved we are in your eyes. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Book of Titus, we did this last week, the context of the book. The book of Titus is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a man named Titus. So if I hand-wrote you a letter and sent it off in the mail, that's what we're reading. A man named Paul, who's been traveling the world, planting churches, he's this awesome missionary guy. One of his younger co-workers' names is Titus, and Titus has done work with Paul, and, and now Paul has sent Titus to strengthen churches in an area called Crete. And so now Paul is over here, Titus is over here, and Paul is writing a letter to encourage and to instruct Titus so that Titus will then turn around and instruct the church. And so Paul is handwriting this letter to Titus. He sends it off to him. And last week we looked at chapter 1 where really he sets out this foundation that we based on faith, that we, if, if we say we have faith in Jesus, and it, it's true, and it's authentic, and it's genuine belief in faith, it will result in the way we live. It will change the way we live. And so we kind of talked about that last week, like, what does your life look like? And are you living just trying to follow a rule book because you feel like you have to, which would not be based out of love? Or are you saying, yeah, I love Jesus so much, but I don't obey anything he says, right? 
There's a disconnect. And so we need to have faith in him, but true faith that produces love-based obedience, love-based following of Jesus. And so when we jump into the chapter today, chapter 2, Paul is going to take that same theme, and now he's going to apply it to very specific people and specific circumstances of our lives that we can listen to today and apply to our lives. So he breaks it down into five groups of people. You see these five groups of people. He says, verse 2, older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, young women. Verse 6, younger men. And then verse 9, slaves. So he lifts five groups of people, and he's going to give some specific instructions to each group of people. And so we're going to do this section kind of quickly. And what I want you to do is, first, uh, this can be hard maybe especially for the ladies in the room, but I want you to self-identify which group you belong in. And I'm not going to identify which group you belong in because being a 22-year-old pastor, when I first started, when I first started, I was 22 years old, and I was the youngest person in my group, and I often made the mistake of calling some great, amazing women who were my elders uh, older, and I learned quickly several times not to do that. And so I'm not going to put you in any category. You put yourself in whichever category you prefer. But real fast, think to yourself, all right, older man, older woman, younger man, younger woman. Just stick with those four categories first, okay? Kind of put yourself in a category, and then I just want you to listen to what are the, the practical instructions Paul is giving to your category of person, okay? So number one, older men. If you would consider yourself an older man, look at what he says, verse 2. Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, or wise, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Temperate, wise, endurance. Those are the three things that stand out to me. That if you're an older man, what are the three things you really can offer the world. You can offer the people beyond you. You can offer the younger people temperance, control. Don't be a slave to your drink. Don't have temperance in the way you eat. Have temperance in the way you consume alcohol. Have temperance in the way that you live because you're showing a model to other people. And as you, as the younger generation's looking up to you, right, if they see people who are wasting away, like that's what they think there is in life. Right? And so you have a chance to show temperance, moderation, to enjoy things without going too far with things in life. And wisdom, I, I love the, the, the analogy in uh, Psalm, I think Psalm chapter 1 talks about the wise man, the righteous wise man is like a tree that is planted firmly and its roots grow deep. And as it grows into this great, you can think of like a, a big, great, massive oak tree that provides shade. For so many things around it. And when I think of an older man who is wise, I think of those trees. I think of every difficult, hard decision in my life, season of my life. And I'm so grateful that I knew a couple of older men who, man, they're wise. I'm not saying they've got the answer to everything in life, but they're wise. And they provide protection to me. And then the last thing is endurance. An older man, you can provide endurance. Guess what? If you're an older man, I'm going to sp- speak right to you. Us younger people are looking at life and saying, hey, this is fun. It's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. 
And we're looking at, we talk about faith specifically. We're looking at, hey, this idea of having faith and following Jesus, it sounded really, really fun, and I'm glad I'm doing it, but I'm finding out it's not as easy as I thought it would be. And what we need is some older men who have endured the trials of life simply from your experience. You've gone through some things, right? You've gotten fired. You've gotten relocated. You've went through some marriage difficulties. You've had struggles in your community, struggles in the workplace, struggles financially. Like you've gone through all that. And guess what? You survived. (laughs) And we need to know that because those things are coming for us. Like, it's just a part of life. And so we need to have the people that we can look at and say, hey, they endured. Hey, that's a model. They've endured. They've gone through this, and they're wise. They've learned from this. So let me talk to them. I can learn from them. I I love, there's a title of a book by Eugene Peterson, just the title of the book. He's talking about being a disciple, and he says, a long obedience in the same direction. A disciple is someone who has a a long obedience in the same direction. When I think of older men, the ones that I look up to that I respect, man, I think of those men who have that obedience, that faith, that endurance. The next group, likewise, tell the older women not uh, to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink, and to teach what is good so that they may encourage the younger women. So older women, three things I would point out. One, not to be slanderers. Paul is, he, he's writing to specific groups of people for specific reasons, and he knows what he's saying, right? And so to, to first caveat this, I'm a guy, and I promise us guys have our whole own host of issues, and I have no problem beating up the guys because I'm a guy. And we're prideful, and we get angry over the stupidest things way too easily, and we can be selfish, and we really struggle with lust and some things like that. So trust me, I'm not trying to hound the women, okay, in any way. I promise I got plenty of ammo for all the guys in the room. But there is not, Paul is not saying to the older women, don't be slanderers for no specific reason. Because this is one of the great temptations. And I don't have to convince you of this. I think you know this. I've got a great friend. He's a pastor who, uh, in a difficult season in his church, he started talking to people behind other people's backs. (laughs) And he started talking about people to other people that he shouldn't have been in it it became a habit, and it sort of just became a pattern, and he started reading some scripture and being convicted about this, and he was asleep one night, and he had a dream, and I'm not going to try to creep anyone out with this dream, but it had an impact on his life. He had this dream where in his dream, every time he opened his mouth to speak, a snake came out, (laughs) like a viper, a, a poisonous viper came out of his mouth, and he said he would like he would freak out and try to close his mouth, and then he would try to say something, and then more of them would come out, and he kept trying to close his mouth, and it kept like really, you, and you might as well say too, if I had that dream, I'd be freaked out too, right? And so he's kind of freaking out, like he can't open his mouth without vipers coming out, and he said he woke up, and one of the only times, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but one of the only times he felt so clear that when he woke up, and he was like, what was that? And God said, that is how I see your mouth when you open it and what you're doing right now that every time you open it, you're spewing poison because you're talking behind people's backs, you're slandering, and you're gossiping. There are a lot of things that will ruin a family, a lot of things that ruin workplaces, a lot of things that will ruin a church 
And we can talk through a list of them. But one of the most prominent, but the most subtle that people overlook is gossip and slander. It will kill your marriage. It'll make your workplace the worst place you ever want to go to, and it will destroy a church. Don't be gossips or slanderers. Two, don't be slaves to drink. Same thing with the older men. Have temperance. So we're not, I don't know what the Bridges philosophy is, but I imagine from the whole ladybirds thing, it's probably, <laughs> agree with mine, but, well, I'm not saying alcohol is bad. I don't have a problem with alcohol, but have temperance. Don't be a slave to it. If every time you meet with this friend, you got to have a drink or it doesn't feel like you can have a normal conversation, that might be a problem, right? That might be an issue. So not saying it's bad, but have temperance. Don't be a slave to drink and teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women. My mother is the greatest mom in the world, as I'm sure all of you would agree, uh, about your own mom, that everyone's mom is the greatest mom in the world. She really is. She's amazing. This woman has probably read the whole Bible more than anyone I know, right? She is, she really is. I'm not just being, I am being biased, but she really is awesome. The woman just reads the scripture. She's been praying like, since I was born, she reads and prays every day, every morning, every night. And I've, like, I don't know her whole life, but I've just never seen her not. So she's amazing, she's so wise, and, and she's just a great woman. And the, I was having a conversation with her uh, maybe a couple years ago, and just the one, there's the one thing I wish my mom would do differently. And I sat down and I told her, and, and she said, she's like, because I, I go to Bible school, and she's like, hey, what, what should I read next? What Bible should I read next? Because she's pretty much read, like, every Bible there is. She's like, which one should I read next, Calvin? And I'm like, mom, you know what, like, I love you, and so you're my mom, so I'm going to say this really carefully, right? But you are so wise. You've done like every Bible study ever written, right? And you've raised, a, we're not perfect, but you've raised a great family, like, and you work in business, like, you're an amazing woman. And the one thing that kind of breaks my heart is you've never discipled anyone else. You've kind of, like, there have been people who have come to you for advice, and you'll share then, but uh, you've kind of held it in. And, and it's not, a, I'm not trying to be negative. I know how great you are. Like, I know how wise and how much wisdom you do have. And so I think the one, like, yeah, you can do some more Bible studies, but you could teach so much. There's so many younger women who are starting families, who are having kids, who are trying to figure out how to work and do this stuff and that stuff, right? And, like, you could teach them so much. So older women, you've got experience, you've got knowledge invested into the younger women. Now, next category, young women. Love their husbands and love their children to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of their households, kind, being submissive to their husbands so that the word of God may not be discredited. Number one, love their husbands and love their children. Now that might sound like dumb, you might think, well, like, why would I not do that? But anyone who's made it past the first three months of marriage knows that the lovey-dovey feelings do fade, right? And at some point, you lose the junior high uh, love thing, and you actually have to put some work into this thing to, to stir up those loving affections. And so he's saying, like, love your husband, right? Make the choice. Put in the effort to love your husband and love your children. 
Number two, to be self-controlled. I, I love that self-control, and when it gets to younger men, it says the same thing for both of the young groups. Be self-controlled. Be in control. Don't let food control you. Don't let drink control you. Don't let sex control you. I don't know there's kids in here. But in, my, in my group, we didn't have kids, so I'm like, well, I don't want to say anything that's too rough. Don't let those things control you, right? Have self-control. Good managers of the household being submissive to their husbands. Now, when we read that, some people are like, red flag, because you might be thinking, whoa, are you oppressing me, right? Like, are you... Are you telling women that they can't work and they can't do these things? No. All right? Same guy who wrote this letter, Paul, in the book of Romans, meets this lady named Lydia. I don't know if any of you read the story. And she's rich. And she's a wealthy business owner who's, like, amazing. And when she becomes a Christian, she ends up leading a huge house church. Like, she does amazing things, Right? And, and what I want to say is, don't read this and think Paul is saying, you're, you've got to be, like, put underfoot. When you read it that way, I think you're reading it wrongly, right? Now, I do think he's teaching powerful principles, but I don't want you to get in that mind because Paul has amazing women who are coworkers with him in everything and do amazing things, and they have jobs, and they work hard. And the culture then is obviously a lot different from our culture now, but even in a culture of this long ago, they had amazing women who worked hard and did amazing things. Now, with all of that, be good managers of your household. You do have a household. Uh, if you're uh, a woman and if you've gotten married, you do have a household. And so one of the practical admissions is be a manager of your household and be submissive to your husbands. And when, when we see that submissive, right, red flag again, what does that mean? Number one, I'm not going to spend all my time focusing on this topic, right? We can, you can talk to Heath about that later, and you can talk to me about it later, but I would be here preaching for like two hours, and I don't have that much time, nor do I want to sit up here for two hours and preach. Be submissive to your husbands. One thing I want to say is when it talks about submission, it's the same word for Jesus to God the Father. So if you think it's in some negative term, then we would have to say Jesus' obedience to God the Father and the way that that relationship works is somehow negative or condescending right? And that's not the case. I don't think any of us are thinking Jesus. We don't look at Jesus in a condescending way. I don't think that at all. But the reality is, if you are married and you do have a household, that the way you and your husband live and decide things and work things out, the way that happens, if it's a hierarchy and a power struggle and I'm this, you're this, and we're just going to fight, like if that's happening, here's the whole point, so that the word of God may not be discredited. This is not an issue of personal freedom and personal choice. This is an issue of what is going to advance the gospel the most. And is the way that you live, is the way you treat your husband, is the way you treat your kids, and we're going to jump to the guys too, right, right back on the other side of that, does that reflect the gospel? Because if people are looking at you and you claim to be a Christian, you claim to have this faith, but your household looks like a wreck, like if, and I'm not saying they're going to be perfect, but if your marriage is falling apart and the divorce rate of Christians, if it's the same as the divorce rate of people who aren't Christians, there's a problem. Like, we don't get it. It's not, it's not adding up. There's a quote, a famous quote, Brennan Manning is an old Christian guy. He said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then deny him by their lifestyle. 
It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> How can you say Jesus is so good and you love him and you believe him if the rest of your life is not adding up to look like that? If everything's falling apart, why would I want that? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I'm a young man, so I can really speak to young men. Be self-controlled. Stop wasting your time on Netflix. Stop wasting your time on video games. I'm not saying those are evil. I'm not saying you can never do them. Have some self-control. If when you get home, all you do is watch stuff, play stuff, if you're wasting away your body because you're eating bad, you're not taking care of it, if you're wasting away your finances because every time you get money, you just spend it as fastly as you can, right? You have a, we have, I'm a young man, we have a unique situation in life to set the foundation and the little habits and the little disciplines and to choose godliness now that will exponentially multiply for the rest of our life. And so young men like me, Start making the wise choices and be self-controlled with your finances, with what you eat, with the way you take care of your body, with everything in your life, with sin issues. Start being self-controlled. And that's a practice. I'm not saying tomorrow you're going to turn around and be the most perfect person in the world. No, but start sowing those seeds and show yourself in all respects a model of good works. And in your teachings, show integrity, gravity, and sound speech. I mean, it's the same theme for each person. He just drills it down even more for younger men. Model it. If you're going to claim you love and believe in Jesus, do it. <laughs> Model it out. Show it in your choices. Show it in how you live. Verse 9, slaves, to be submissive to their masters, I'm going to pause right there, and I'm going to try not to take forever on this because, once again, a whole other category we could talk about for hours. Number one, when the Bible says slaves, just real fast because you're probably not going to hear anything else I say if I don't deal with this. If you read a passage like this or other passages in the Bible, and therefore you advocate slavery like we know of slavery in our context from 150 years ago, uh, I will spiritually, verbally fight you outside with the word and tell you that is not accurate. And that's what a lot of people used to do back in the day in the American slave issues. Like, well, I don't have to inform you all of the history of all that. But people used to do that. And they would take scriptures way out of context to justify things that we would say is clearly evil and clearly not what Jesus would want or intended. So what does this say? Slaves to be submissive to their masters. And we can go through this issues of how, number one, slavery in this context is totally different than the North American or the American slave trade than we thought of that. Whole, totally different context. I'm not saying it's a great thing. But in this context, real fast, number one, read the Old Testament about slavery. They would get set free after seven years. They had to be provided for. Masters couldn't treat them harshly. They couldn't beat them. There's all these lists of rules that if you have a slave, how they have to be treated and when you have to set them free right? So number one, it's a whole different standard than the way we think of it. Number two, people would put themselves into slavery as a form of employment. People who didn't have any money, this was, I'm going to work for you for five years, and I'm going to be a household slave, so I'm just going to work for you and do what you say, and you're going to provide for me, and at the end of this time, I'll be set free, right? Different context. We can go through all those issues. It'll take a long time. How do we apply this to our lives today? What I would say is many of you, I'm assuming, have signed some sort of contract to some sort of person or company that you've agreed to work for for a certain amount of payment. 
I'm assuming most of you have a job of some sort. And if that is you, give satisfaction in every respect, not to talk back, not to pilfer. I had to look that word up, not going to lie. It means still. But to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God. So in your workplace, how do you show the gospel? You give satisfaction. You work hard. You don't steal time and money from your employer, wasting, right? You work hard. You work hard. You don't talk back. You don't slander. You don't gossip, right? I was a pastor, so I'm still a pastor, but specifically for four years as I led a church in Katy, and we had people, you know, how are you doing? And they would come in, and I'm not saying work is always perfect, but I had two different people, one person who really hated their job and Almost all the time they would come and they would just complain. I hate my job. I hate my boss. And the three, three months later, they had a new job. I hate my job. I hate my boss. Three months later, they had a new job. I hate my job. I hate my boss. On the other hand, I had an amazing woman who worked at a company for like 15 years. And it was not the greatest environment. And there was some gossip in her workplace and, and things behind. And she, she did not like that. But the way she handled that, she said, you know what? I can't decide. I can't choose how those people act. I can't do for anything for them. I can only determine who I am. And Jesus tells me to be this type of person, so I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to gossip. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to show respect. I'm not going to steal time or money from my employer. I'm going to work hard. I'm not going to talk back. And why would you do this? So that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of our God and Savior. If you're in your workplace and you're saying, I'm a Christian, and you're slandering your boss, or you work really lazily, which is stealing time and money from the person who's agreed to pay you for this amount of work and this amount of time, right? What is that telling these people about the Savior you claim to believe in and the guy that you claim you're modeling your life after, right? This is what Paul's saying. Look at your life in all of these different categories and say, is the way I'm living, if, if I'm saying that I'm modeling my life after Jesus, does the way my life looks reflect that? Now, verse 11, why? I just said all of this stuff about how we should live how you should affect your marriage, your workplace, your children. We just laid out all these different things, and you might be sitting there and saying, uh, cool for you and all that. Why in the world would I want to do that? Why don't I just do what I want? Why don't I just live how I want to live? Like, why would I do all of these things Paul just tell me? Verse 11, for everything before this, because for the grace of God has appeared. Because grace has appeared. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. Here is why. Because grace is a free gift from God that you can't earn. That is why right now where you sit, whatever the situation is in your life, you will never be more valuable than you are right now to God. You will never be worth more than you are right now to God. And you will never be loved more than you are right now to God. You can't earn it. Therefore, you have nothing to prove to anyone. 
You don't have to prove it to anyone. He already loves you. He already considers you inherently just incredibly valuable and worth. He loves you so much, you don't have to earn it. The grace of God has appeared. And the reason why we can do all of these things, Paul just said, is because that grace has appeared. Because when I know I've got grace from God, I don't have to prove to anyone who I have to be. I don't have to prove to this person or that person. I can live freely and I can live for him. I don't have to live for anyone else. I don't have to have the approval of anyone else. The grace of God has approved. And so I know who I am in him. Therefore, I can live how he wants, freely. I'm not a slave to anything. I'm not a slave to a law. I'm not a slave. For me, the relationship with God and Christianity is not a list of a hundred do's and don'ts. It's a, I love him because of how he much has loved me. And so I want to live for him and have a relationship with him. I used the illustration last week of marriage. The deeper I fall, the deeper that I know and love my wife, the deeper that I want to live in a good relationship with her. The, the more that I don't want to do things that would hurt my relationship with her. Because I love her, not because I feel like a slave. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And look at how this works. Bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Subpoint of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're looking for one of the most explicit claims that Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher. Christianity, by the way, we don't think Jesus Christ is just a good teacher, just a good model. That we, we don't stop there. Like There's a lot of great teachers in the world, and he is a good teacher, but he's more than that. The most explicit claim, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But look at how this grace is applied. It has appeared in bringing salvation to all, It is training us now while we wait. (laughs) It is past, it is present, and it is future. That already in the past, the grace has appeared and is applied to your life. But as it's already applied to your life, now it trains you and transforms you and renews you that you can live differently while we wait for one day to fully meet our Savior and be changed forever. I love what Paul does with this and how he breaks it down. The grace of God has appeared already. It is training us as we wait. In verse 14, the last verse that we're going to read, he it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself, a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. He's already done it. He's already given himself up to redeem us from whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever you have in your mind, right? Whatever that mental list of in your mind is, here's who I am, here's all the things I've done, and they don't know that, right? And if, if they only knew, they wouldn't love me. I was writing something yesterday and thinking, about knowing and loving God, that the more we know someone, the more we can fall in love with them. The less we know someone, the harder it is, the, the harder it is to deeply love them. And in the middle of that, I had this profound thought, like, 
Calvin, God knows you. Like there's people, my wife knows me well, but God knows you from the time you were born to now. All the good things and all the bad things. All those selfish motives, all those sins, all the willful disobedience, all the evil thoughts, all the, all, like he knows all of that. And he loves you. Like that's how great his love is that before him I'm, I'm truly me and he loves you. He's redeemed us from all iniquity and purified himself of people who are zealous for good deeds. Because of his love and his redeeming and forgiveness, now we want to, we are zealous for good deeds. I want to end with this. Um, I think if I was to ask most people, what is the gospel, they would sum it up in some way like this. God loved the world and you so much that even though you've sinned, he sent his son to die for you that you might be forgiven of your sins. Most people would sum up the gospel in that, which, by the way, is true. But I would say that's inadequate. I would say it's true, but it's not the whole story. Here's why. I can't tell you the gospel and leave out, number one, the Holy Spirit, which we believe is a third part of God, like the third person of the Trinity, right? So there's a problem there. And number two, Jesus didn't just die. He resurrected. So how do we tell the gospel without resurrection? And my point in this is that we only think the gospel is forgiveness because he died. And we forget that it's new life because he rose. So the gospel is not just past, but it's present and future. And so the gospel is, if you're wondering The gospel is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he knows it all. And even then, he loved you so much that he would send his only son to live a perfect sinless life to give himself up for you. That whatever you've done, he took it on himself and died for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Yes, But also, three days later, he rose from the grave, showing that sin and death, the things that hurt our lives, the things that have messed up our world, the things that mess up your uh, relationships, your finances, your marriages, the things that mess with our lives, he has power over them. He has defeated them. And so he rose from the grave, and now, because we believed in him and we've been forgiven by him, he will send his Holy Spirit to change your life so that not only are you forgiven, but you are renewed and you are being changed. And I'm not perfect, but every day I've got the Holy Spirit living in me, guiding me and transforming my life so that here and now I don't have to be a slave to anything because the grace of God has appeared and it wants to change your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace And that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done right now in this room, there's nothing we could do to earn more of your love because you've already given all of your love to us. And there's nothing we could do to earn more worth in your eyes because we're already so worth it in your eyes. That's how much you love us. You know us fully and you love us still. And God, I pray that if we leave here with anything today, we would leave knowing the grace of God has appeared And he can forgive me of all my past, but he can also transform my future. 
And I don't have to live the same way. I don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to be a slave to selfishness or drink or bitterness or anger or lust or pride or envy or jealousy or greed. I don't have to be a slave to any of that because the grace of God has appeared and he knows all those things I have and he forgives them all. And he's transforming me to be a person zealous for good deeds because as I see your love, God, I love you in return. Father, I thank you for your gospel and I thank you for what you've done and what you're doing. And I'm just going to ask right now as you're praying, if you haven't believed this or if you're struggling to believe this, would you just say, God, you know who I am fully, all the good and all the bad. And I believe you still choose to love me. Would your love and your grace save me and change my life? Thank you for your grace, Jesus. We pray all this in your name.